Hello and welcome to this episode of Women in Finance podcast. If you're new to the show, I hope you remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. My guest today is Jennifer Petrilieri, an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD, where she also directs the Executive Education Management Acceleration Program, the Women Leaders Program, and the INSEAD Gender Diversity Program. An award-winning researcher and teacher, Jennifer has been investigating how individuals craft and sustain their personal and professional identities in contexts characterized by uncertainty, such as mobile careers or organizations and professions in crisis. Jennifer is also the author of Couples That Work, a book that explores how working or dual career couples can thrive in love and at work. Published in 2019, the book is full of practical tools which stretch beyond just agreeing who does the dishes. In this conversation, we unpack some of the insights from the book while learning more about Jennifer's own journey to academia. Please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Petrilieri. Hello, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. The main topic of our conversation today will surely be your the great book you've wrote in 2019. But before we get to that, I was just curious to learn more about yourself, your background and how you made your way to academia. So in some ways, academia is a family business. Both of my parents are academics. But when I graduated from university, I was absolutely certain I would never be an academic. So I worked in business for seven years and then um, eventually found my way back into academia. I did an MBA and got really interested in the academic side. And I guess you can only run for so long, right? And then I um, really transitioned across into academia and I've been now for the past 15 years in the academic world. What was it about academia that attracted you? So why did you decide to then change and, and stick around for so many years afterwards? But I mean, partly it's the freedom to do just exactly what you want and to research the things. And I've always been a bit of a geek. <laughs> I like research and I like finding out things. And I think I've always been obsessed with the why question. Like, why does that happen and what makes the difference? So it's just the ideal career for me. The topics you are researching and you started researching as an academic, did those originate from your own interest or? Yeah, partly. So I've always, all my research centers on kind of careers, leadership development, some women in business topics too. And then obviously the working couples topic. And I honestly, I think it's hard to research something that you have no personal connection with. And of course, this isn't about my life. This isn't about my stories. But I think just to be able to empathize and to understand the people you're talking to for your research. I think it helps to have some personal experience of the topics, the career changes. Obviously, I've done that. The working couples, the kind of rising at the leadership level. So yeah, there's always some personal connection. What were some struggles when you started out? Were there any Yeah, so I came to academia in academic terms relatively late. Mm. So I was already early 30s when I studied for my PhD. It was the time I was having my children. So I had two children. So it was sort of everything was happening at the same time. You know, I was trying to get my foot on the ladder in this new profession. Anyone who's done a PhD will tell you it's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it's really hard work. And I had two kids under two years old. So it was that was a really, really challenging time. But it was really about a lot of 
nice stuff was happening, but all at the same time. And that was sort of very, very difficult to manage. And I guess my husband's an academic as well. We've been very lucky to find jobs at the same institution, but it wasn't always certain that would happen. And so I think there was a very stressful time when I finished my PhD and we were thinking about where should we go and where can we both get jobs and the uncertainty of that. You know, I think as any working couple will tell you when they're trying to find jobs in the same city, that it's not a lot of fun, but it all worked out in the end. So we're very fortunate. Did you think, did you consider taking a different course at some point or that was not an option? You started with the PhD, you wanted to stay on course. I mean, I'd already taken a different course in my business career. So I think I was pretty certain by that point what I wanted to do. And I'm someone who's very stubborn. So once I start something, I'm not going to stop. So it never sort of even occurred to me that I might do that, actually. Mm -hmm. So you started mentioning a little bit about your research and the field of your research, which culminated into a book in 2019. Can you speak a bit about the book? Who is it targeting? Who is it focused on? And how the idea for it came about? Yeah, so the book is called Couples That Work, and it's essentially a book for working couples. So couples where both partners have careers and they obviously have a relationship. And the idea for the research, which eventually became the book, really came about probably about 10 years ago now, actually, when, you know, I was in that real crunch period with small kids and we were trying to make it work. So there was a personal experience element. And it was also the time when Lean In, you know, Mm -hmm. Sheryl Sandberg's book was starting to come out. And Sheryl Sandberg and Mary and Slaughter and others were very famous for saying the most important career decision you make is who you marry. And I remember hearing that and thinking there's a truth in that, but it's not just about who you pick. The way they said it, it sounded like a selection problem, right? If you pick the right person, if you kiss the right prince, the frog will turn into a prince and you'll live happily ever after. And of course, that's not the reality, right? The issues, the challenges often arise because you found a prince or a princess and because you have a job you love and then things get complicated. So I thought there's a truth in that, but it's not about who you pick. It's about what happens next. And then as an academic, of course, my first instinct was to go to the library (laughs) and see what there was written about this and just realize there's really no systematic research in this area. There's a lot of people who talk about their own experiences, which is fine. And there's a lot of research on work-life balance, which is who does the childcare versus the career. But there's really no research which puts the whole pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together and looks at the two careers side by side and the life. And obviously not just children, because we don't all have children, but elder care and community and friends and really puts the whole jigsaw piece together. And that's what I wanted to do. So that was kind of sparked the research, which eventually became the book. Mm, Yeah, I guess. But we'll get to that in a second, how division of tasks or deciding on a schedule is not all it is. Yeah. So um, coming back to the research part, so as you started digging in, what were the most surprising things you found out or something that you would have not expected maybe? So really the most surprising thing comes back a little bit to what you just said, is that the way in most media, in most podcasts, in most magazine articles, working couples are presented is it's a logistics problem, Mm -hmm. right? If you can just sync your Google calendars and figure out the childcare schedule and all the social schedule and the travel schedules, you should be okay. And it became very quickly apparent in my research that that was not the issue at all. That of course, these things are painful. And as couples, we sometimes argue about them, but they were really the symptom rather than the cause. So, you know, they were the 
the runny nose as opposed to the virus you had. And the real challenges or the issues couples faced were about things much deeper. You know, who gets the power to decide? Whose career takes priority? You know, how do we make decisions? How do we support each other? How do we think about what a good life would be for us? And these are things which we rarely talk about, Mm. right? They're things which we think if we just tick off all those practical things, we'll be fine. And I had couples coming to me and saying, well, you know, Jennifer, we spend three hours a week talking about the next week and how we're going to divide the tasks and it's still not working. And they're genuinely puzzled. They've got all the books, they've done the tick list and it's still not working. And of course, it's still not working because that's not really the issue. Mm. Now, that's not to say you never need to schedule calendars. Of course you do. But that's not the thing that's going to get you past the challenges. These couples I was reading about in the book, right? You have a lot of examples. Those that really found a way, how did they know how to do it? So many through trial and error. So first of all, the couples in the book have not got everything sorted. (laughs) Many of them are facing challenges. So they're not the perfect couples. But I think many of them found solutions because they got to a crisis point, Mm -hmm. right? And realized there's something else going on here, right? This isn't working, which forced some of these conversations. I think others fell into these conversations or maybe someone suggested them. There were very, very few couples in the book who had it all sorted from the beginning and went through, you know, most of them reached some kind of tipping point or some crisis point which was very much a make or break point and you know found a way to make it work Mm. I'm just very interested in the fact that you didn't come from a couples counselor or sort of therapist psychologist type of background and you approached this topic so how was that experience for you I don't know whether you have ever thought uh, about it from this point of view So I do actually have psychologist Ah, training. So I do have that background. I'm just a prison school professor now. So I do have that that background. But I think what enabled me to really do this research was having both. Mm. And if you look at the books and research on couples, usually they're either one or the other. They're either this is how to have a great relationship, but we're going to imagine you don't have a career or just not even talk about the fact that you work. Or here's some career advice, which doesn't take into account there's anyone else in your life. And I think the fact that I had that dual background really enabled me to put those two pieces together in the book. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's dive a bit deeper now into the book. It's uh, structured around three main transition phases. Can you speak briefly about those and also how they shaped out to be those particular transition phases? On the surface, when I, you know, I interviewed all these couples, really diverse, different countries, different career stages, different life stages, and of course, hugely diverse. Mm. And yet when I compared their stories, I saw a really strong pattern emerging. The challenges they faced were somewhat predictable, right? That all couples faced quite a predictable set of transitions across the course of their life. And while these transitions looked a little bit different on the surface, underneath their issues were very much rooted in the same thing. So the first transition couples face can really be boiled down to when you have your first tough decision to make. So if you think about the early days of your relationship, the honeymoon Mm. period, it's wonderful and it's very exciting. And really, you've not made any difficult decisions. You know, you've both got your careers, you've got your families, you've got your friends, and the relationship is like a little cherry on the top of the cake. 
And then at some point, you're going to face a tough decision. Maybe one of you gets offered a job on the other side of the country. What do you do? Do you both go? Does someone give up their job? Do they follow? Like This is quite a difficult thing to navigate through. Or, you know, maybe you have a, a child, mm. right? Anyone who's had a child will know. <laughs> That's a lot to work through. Or maybe you're a couple who get together in later life. And it's like, do we combine families from previous marriages? And when couples face this first decision, it really sparks this first transition, which is essentially, I think, of the time when you really become a couple. Mm. Well, what do I mean by a couple? I mean, people whose lives are interdependent. In those early days, your lives aren't interdependent. They're just really parallel and it's very nice. But at some point, you need to weave them together. And this is the stage where we really very often think about logistics. Like, So for example, let's say, take the job example. Who earns most money, right? How do we make a decision? Well, if we can earn more money by moving city, we should do it. Seems really rational, <laughs> But of course, that's not why we work. It's not just for money. It's for other reasons. It's for are we close to family? What kind of community do we have? Do we have growth opportunities? And so at this stage, while couples might have different things that trigger that transition and different decision-making criteria, almost all of them make the mistake of not realizing that what that transition is really about is power, Mm -hmm. which is whose career is going to take priority and how do we figure out who has the power to choose and decide? And that seems to be the root cause in almost all couples. And of course, it plays out in different ways. So in that first piece of the book, I talk about these dynamics of power and choice. For example, career prioritization, whose career takes priority, if anyone's, and how do we negotiate that? And what I found in the research is that couples who really got down to that level and can talk about that got through the transition rather well. Those that didn't stored up problems for later. So it very often came out as resentment and guilt a little bit later on in the relationship. So just by kind of staying at that surface practical level, they really kind of tripped themselves up on that first transition. So that's the first transition. And that comes in the, usually in the first five to eight years of your relationship, whenever you get together in life. So whether you get together at 20 or 40 or 60, Mm. this is going to happen, right? And it's all about how you negotiate it. The second transition is a little bit more related to career phase. So this tends to happen mid-career, which is usually somewhere in the 40s. And so if you think about the 20s and 30s, these are periods where we're striving, right? So we're growing our career, we're growing our relationships, some of us grow a family at the same time. And we're sort of on a train and we're running as fast as we can. (laughs) And then what very often happens is we get to our 40s and suddenly the train is in a different station. (laughs) And we're like, how did I get here? I'm not sure this is where I want to be. And it's a time when many, many of us have almost existential rethink of what we want in life. And this is very well documented. It's a real good developmental stage. It's a good thing we do this. But this is very stressful for couples because when you are reconsidering and thinking through your career and life, it's really stressful for your partner because he or she is going to start thinking, well, you know, is this about me? Is this my fault? Is she not happy in the relationship? Also, it has a knock-on effect to your partner's career. So if you think, okay, what I really want to do is retrain, well, that has a big effect on family finances, right? So there's no such thing by this stage as independent decision-making. And so it can create real tensions. And it's not a surprise, actually, that when we look at the divorce statistics, this is a real peak time for divorce. And it's because all of these issues are on the table at the same time. And again, if we look at what's really happening underneath couples, what's happening is a shift in the way we need to support each other. So if we think of the early days of our relationship, we tend to think of good support as what I think of as a very British like tea and sympathy. You're great, you're wonderful, they're 
idiots. <laughs> you know, it's all their fault. Um, you'll be fine. Which feels really nice to be on the receiving end of, but it's actually not very good in a transition. What we need to get us through that kind of more existential transition is a little bit of a loving kick, which is someone who kind of sits us down and is almost like a sparring partner. So it's a, a shift in the roles of our relationship. And because in society as a whole, we tend to think of a good relationship as one which is all cuddles and support and that kind of sickly sweet support. Mm -hmm. We don't realize that, especially for working couples who have this element of the career in the mix as well, what we really need is more of a kind of battle partner to battle this out and figure it out together. And again, the couples who kind of switch this model of support that's a little bit under the surface are the couples who can much more easily work through what's on the surface and get to a better transition. So that's the second transition. The third transition comes in later career, which I know most of your listeners are not there yet. So just briefly, what happens in later career is our roles begin to change. So we're no longer on the really steep trajectory up. We're no longer the high potential. If we had children, they'd probably flown the nest. So we're no longer the hands-on parents. And it really makes us question our identity. You know, who are we now? We're not the bright young thing you know, the superstar in the organization, the hands-on parents. And there's a deep sense of loss that mm. comes at this time, but there's also a sense of opportunity, right? We have renewed freedom. And so there's, it's a time where we can do major reinventions. I'm going to talk less about that because I know it's a long way from where your listeners are. So that's just in a nutshell, the three transitions. How they crystallized mostly from your research or you already had some sort of idea what this would be? Not at all. And, and in fact, at the beginning, they came as a surprise because I think at the beginning, I collected all these diverse stories and it was exciting. And then I thought, my goodness, there's nothing in common here. And it's only when I really started to literally like print them out and lay them alongside each other that I actually started to be able to connect the dots and the commonalities. Because I think I was biased in the same way as everyone else. It's so easy to see the stuff on the surface and think that's the issue rather than digging underneath and thinking, okay, why is this really happening and what's really going on. Mm. It was interesting for me to realize that, I mean, there are a lot of, it feels at least when you're still pre-children, let's say, <laughs> it feels that there are a lot of milestones you have to overcome, a lot of important decisions, but it's totally different when children arrive. Is that the definite milestone moment and everything else is just like training or how do you look at this? No, not necessarily, actually. I think sometimes, especially in the West, where we've really gone for nuclear families, mm. right? The grandparents aren't as involved as they were. We tend to put too much emphasis on what children do to the global picture. Now, of course, they bring a lot of joy <laughs> and um, they require a lot of organization. But actually, what I think about children in terms of these dynamics is they kind of turn the heat up. So if you imagine this is a gas cooker, they just turn the gas up a little bit, right? They, they turn the pressure up on the system, but they don't really change the underlying dynamics. There's still questions. I mean, and, and if we think about that early stage, the, the idea of a couple, like, where should we live? Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and whose career takes priorities? That's a question of power. Of course, that question of power also comes into the childcare, right? Who carries the load with the children? Who's responsible? We can look at this in terms of tasks, you know, who does drop off and pick up at daycare? And yes, that's a piece of it, but it's really a piece of who's responsible? Who's the lead parent? Can we really co-parent? Can we get out of the gender roles if we're a heterosexual couple? And so again, yes, it makes a difference. Of course, it makes a difference. 
but it's not an entirely different world. Mm. It really is very similar issues. They just play up in slightly different ways. So the, the way you describe the transition phases, and it's very common nowadays, I have the feeling at least, it's very easy to travel, which often leads to long distance relationships. If a couple is in a long distance relationship, when is the first transition coming? Yeah, it's a good question. So sometimes it comes with the decision to do that, right? That we may have met together and then sort of gone long distance. But I think what we find when we look at the research on long distance relationships is in general, they can be sustained for a couple of years, but past that point, it gets very difficult. Now, there's always the exception. Of course, I'm generalizing, but we do see this quite strongly when we look at them. And I think what most couples, the transition comes at the point when we decide, okay, Either we're going to move together or we're breaking apart. And I think that inevitably comes within, you know, two, three, four years. It just is not sustainable for obvious reasons over the long term. So sticking a bit more to the examples you give in the book, uh, the stories you use. So they are very diverse in terms of their backgrounds. But I'm wondering in your research, maybe more broadly, even outside of the book, Could you draw any high-level conclusions as to how couples tend to work in a certain industry, like in industries which are or roles that are a bit more demanding? Coming back to that cooker metaphor with the turning the gas up and down, it's true that there are certain professions, finance being one of them, law being another obvious one, where the gas is turned up. Now, Obviously, if both partners are in one of those professions, the gas is even higher, right? Because it's it's really difficult in those professions. And so again, I don't think it's particularly different dynamics. I think the context just makes it a lot harder. Now, part of this is a couple question and part of this is an organizational question, quite frankly. And I think organizations in these sectors are beginning to recognize the issue, but they're not translating it yet to a set of solutions. Now, there is a hope that the pandemic may actually speed up this process, because one of the things in finance, in law, in some of these other professions is there's a very high expectation of FaceTime. You have to be in the office to do these jobs. Well, it turns out you don't, right? which we've all learned. And one of the things we know about working couples is they're no less ambitious, right? We still want the promotions. We still want to work as hard. But what's helpful for us is what I call marginal flexibility, right? I'm going to work just as hard as someone who doesn't have kids or is not in a couple, but I just need a bit of leeway in terms of when and where I do it. So maybe I come home a little bit early, spend a bit of time with my kids, but then log back on later at night. Or maybe I have one or two days a week working from home where I can get other things done and balance a bit. And then the other days in the office. Now, pre-pandemic in the law, the financial services, some other professions, that was really frowned upon. Mm. Okay, you had to be in the office. And I think one of my hopes with the pandemic is that some of these professions have learned that doesn't need to be the case. And maybe we can have some kind of blend approach, which will actually help working couples. And of course, it turns out it helps productivity as well. Mm -hmm. So if we look at your highest ratio of productivity, especially in jobs like financial services, there's a rule of thumb, which is called three plus two plus two. So three days in the office, two days working at home and two day weekend. Why? Well, 
of course, we do need that face-to-face interaction, right? It aids collaboration, it aids innovation, it aids creativity. So that's the three days in the office. It is necessary, the meeting clients, these things. However, what is hard to get done in the office is what we think of as deep work, right? That concentrated work, that real careful analysis, the writing of the report. We know we're much less productive when we do that in the office. So the two days at work, from work's perspective, gives people that deep work time to really get things done. The three plus two makes them very productive at work. From a personal well-being perspective, three plus two is also great, right? Because we get the connections with our colleagues, which turns out helps our well-being. But we also have those two days with no commute, where we can sit in our pajama bottoms (laughs) with a nice blouse on and do our Zoom calls, where we can manage a few of those tasks, like the delivery man coming or the repair man coming, which are just that much more difficult if we're at work five days a week. So some kind of blended work will really help working couples. That doesn't necessarily help the expectation of the long hours, but just having that flexibility makes a big difference. And then I think in a couple, it's really about what are our boundaries Mm. in the couple and what does being a good worker mean to us? Because these jobs I think of as greedy jobs, right? They will take whatever you can give and more. And yet there are plenty of people who are very successful who do not give 80 hours a week. You know, okay, how do they do that? They do that by having very, very strong boundaries, right? This is what I'm prepared to give and that's my limit. Now, what does that do psychologically to us and at work? At work, when we have those strong boundaries, what it stops us doing is taking on a lot of scut work, right? Those tasks, oh, would you mind helping with this? Actually, no, like my workload's full. It turns out that doesn't damage our performances at all, right? It really helps our performance. Psychologically, it really helps us because it reduces that uncertainty if I know, actually, I was talking to a very senior leader the other day, and she said, one of my boundaries with my kids is I'm going to tuck them in at least four times a week, right? That's my minimum four times a week. So she knows if she signed up for two client dinners, it's enough, right? So she doesn't torture herself, oh, shall I do it? Shall I not? I've already made the decision, it's done. And so have it sitting down with your partner, if you're in a working couple in an area like finance, drawing these boundaries around how much travel is too much travel, when do we stop, how much time at work, you know, late nights, all these things. And obviously being realistic about the industry, there is a certain expectation, but just knowing that the more you give, the more they'll take, and you've got to find what's your stopping point can be really helpful. I have two follow-up points to that. So one is maybe on the very last point, how does one who's not a senior go about and set those boundaries? Well, it turns out there's some research on this. It turns out you don't need to be very senior. I think the difference is when you're senior is you can tell people about your boundaries. Mm. I think when we're more junior, you just quiet it. They're just more internal boundaries. So let's take the client meal situation, right? Very often in finance, you're working on multiple project teams and it is actually quite easy to play them off against each other, right? Actually, I've already got something that evening. No one's going to know. And there was actually a wonderful piece of research done in a very high-paced consultancy, which is similar to, to the finance industry, looking at men and not on women. And what they looked at, the researcher, Erin Reed, she divided the men into three groups. Men who basically did everything that was asked of them and just said, yes, 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 all the time. Men who pretended to, but actually didn't, right, had boundaries. So, you know, I'm just going to a client meeting. I'm actually going to pick up my kid from a basketball match or whatever it was, you know, so sort of Played the system a bit. 
a man who did exactly the same as the second group, but told everyone, I'm going to pick my kid up from a basketball match, right? Instead of I'm going to a client meeting. It turns out the group with the highest performance was the middle group, mm. right? The group who pretended to do everything, but didn't. Why? Because we're much more productive when we have breaks in our day, right? When we have this flexibility. Who got promoted the most was also the middle group. <laughs> Because they looked as if they were doing it all, but they had the highest performance. Of course, the third group actually had a very similar performance to the second group, but because they pushed back on the system, they were punished, right? And so what this tells us is there can be a quite a big gap between what you do and what you say you do, mm. right? And I think one of the great things about financial services, about law, about consultancy, is there's some opaqueness in the work. And we can take advantage of that to build in some flexibility to our schedules. The other follow-up point I had on what you mentioned about uh, COVID and its impact, you know, just making people more aware that through technology, there are just so many more options and people are actually more productive. Given your work uh, you do now, I guess you have your finger on the pulse when it comes to organizations. I was wondering whether you can tell how organizations think about this. What is their view? Do they think this is a good idea? Have this hybrid model or do most still think it's a transition it will go back to whatever we know from pre-covid so there's variance <laughs> however i think many many organizations have realized that their talent population is just not up for coming back five days a week and i think particularly obviously it's different if you have a manufacturing plant this is very clear but in careers like finance I think what's happening is a realization that if you want to keep talent, you've got to put in some kind of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, what we know from the research is what happens is the company may set a policy, but who really endorses it is your local manager. And this is where the variance comes in. You know, Morgan Stanley may say, okay, from now on, you can all work from home two days a week. But if your manager, if your boss is very old fashioned, is like, well, I don't care what Morgan Stanley say, unless you're in here every day, you're not getting the promotion. That's where the variance comes in. My sense talking to a lot of senior managers is there are not many who have that view. Mm. Most managers have also appreciated working from home a couple of days a week. Like who likes commuting? You know, who likes doing these things? But I also think managers are pragmatic. They realize it is important we're face to face some of the time. I think this idea of 100% home working actually is not healthy. Either for us, we need human contact or for our productivity. And I think most managers recognize that. But I think there are very few managers anymore that would block some kind of form of blended working. But we will see in the next <laughs> few months, won't we? This will all kind of, <laughs> we'll see if my predictions are true. So there's a range of tools mentioned in the book. How can couples actually go through each of this transition phase? Uh, you also give kind of best practice. Can you speak very briefly about a few of those tools and how they came about? Yeah, yeah. So the tools really was a long process to get to them because first it was like about realizing the transitions, the things people were struggling with, and then sort of testing them out like in a second round on couples to see sort of what worked. The way I think of most of the tools, if I think of it really simply, are really just conversation aids. They're a way to get people talking about these things, but in a slightly more comfortable way. Because I know sometimes people are a little bit reticent to have these conversations, you know, so things like setting boundaries, right? Thinking about where do we want to be based? Mm. 
you know, a simple tool of printing out a map of your country or, or Europe or whatever, and sitting down together and circling what are the potential locations is great for sparking a conversation about, you know, where are boundaries around geography? Would we live apart? Or do we not live apart? Where, where might be the couples we could come together? And it's a really helpful conversation starter. Now, the tool itself is not rocket science, but it's really about sparking those conversations. So as you said, the book has a lot of these tools which work really well, but essentially they're just ways to get ourselves into the conversation. And the other thing to say your listeners might like is on my website, which maybe you can put in the show notes. For the pandemic, I did a video series, a survival series. And with it, I posted a lot of worksheets that you can just print off, download and print out for free, which again are a great way to kind of, they're just conversation openers. But a little things, a few things to think about, a couple of things to map and then have a conversation. Mm. So the tools are, as you said, conversation starters. I think it doesn't it all also entail a little bit of mindset shifting in some cases? A little bit, but less than you would think. And I think the mindset shifting, we tend to think that if we think, oh my goodness, I have to do all of this in one go. But what I find when I actually work with couples is if they just do one little piece at a time, actually doing the exercises shifts the mindset. It's not that the mindset shift have to come, has to come first. And I think what can frighten people is when they think, oh my goodness, I need to talk through this and this and this and this, and we're going to have to sit down for five hours and thrash it all out first of all that's not going to work very well it's not a very good idea and that's not at all how you need to do it this is you know maybe once a week once every couple of weeks picking off one of these topics or something that feels relevant to what you're dealing with now and just gradually start working your way into these conversations and then your mindset will change as you do them yeah, so I'll certainly link your website and also the book um, in the show notes for anyone interested uh, to head over there very fast. So the book has been out since 2019. What are some some things that you realized afterwards? Are there any changes? Do you uh, think about a second book now? Couples that work 2.0? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely room for a book. Parents that work <laughs> really honing in on the, the children angle. Because I think that does add, as I said, it really turns the heat up in that so that's definitely kind of it's on the thinking shelf I wouldn't say I'm working on it but it's definitely on the thinking shelf to sort of think that through you know you always look back and think oh I would have changed mm -hmm. a little bit of that or a little bit of that but there's nothing huge I would have changed no do you get uh inbound case studies from people saying that they they use the tools yes yes a lot yeah you have a larger uh, research pool then for the next book yeah Indeed. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about the program you are leading at INSEAD because I think that fits also very well with the book and also the goal of this podcast, actually. So can you speak about the Women Leaders Program? So the it's a program I direct at INSEAD, the business school where I work, and it's really for senior women leaders. It's leadership development, but also looking at the specific challenges that senior women face and how we can overcome them. So things like being in the spotlight all the time, which women are more than men at senior, like how do we deal with that? How do we find our voice? How do we present ourselves in the right way? Things like building a really powerful professional network, which we know is just that bit harder for women than for men, like dealing with systemic bias. We know it happens, we know it's there, but how do you get around it? So the the program is really aimed at women who are getting to that very senior level and who want the tools to really just power through the last piece of their career and navigate around some of these issues um, in a skillful way. 
it's focused on, on more senior roles because it requires the experience. Because I have the feeling that a lot of the topics you mentioned could be, I mean, someone younger could also learn those things. Yeah, so they could. The reason we focus on senior women is that as we become more senior, there's less of us proportionally and these dynamics could become just that bit more difficult. So that was the, the reason. But yeah, I'm sure it could benefit more junior. Maybe we should launch a program for junior women as well. I wanted to ask you about skills in general, like across your career and also when it comes to, you know, writing a book and pro having to promote a book. So what do you think are some key skills that you developed or maybe you, you didn't develop over time? You had them and you realized they were they are very important. I think the key skill was really this idea of the narrative, right? The red thread that runs through everything. And I think before I was very good at telling pieces of the picture, but not necessarily talking about the whole jigsaw, if that makes sense. And I think um, that's very much a skill. You know, I'm an introvert, but I'm a very social introvert. Like I like being with people, but it exhausts me. Like I get my energy from being alone. And I think what writing the book did was really make me realize that piece of myself. So I loved being able to lock myself away in my office and just write and have an excuse mm -hmm. to kind of be alone. And so I think it really reinforced what my working style is and where I thrive, which is having big periods of solitude and then doing outreach things like this, but then retreating to my cave very quickly. Are there any bigger lessons learned across your career? So maybe something like, you know, now, but you wish you knew earlier. Yeah. And I think it came out in my research is that we often, we so often attribute success to an individual. They're great. Didn't they do well? But it became so clear, just partly me writing the book, you know, it's my book, but I had a ton of support. And also talking to all these couples, just how relational success is, right? We're only, we can only possibly be successful when we have a web of relationships around us supporting us. And I think we rarely talk about that, right? We highlight the individual so much and we never think of what it takes. And that's not just about acknowledging the other people. It's about acknowledging for, you know, more junior people. If you want to be successful, don't just think of your own development. Think of the development of your relationships, because that is the thing which ultimately is going to support you getting to the top. Mm. Is there a book that had a particular impact on you, maybe besides your own book? So it's a very obscure psychoanalytic book by Eric Fromm on love. What I like about Eric Fromm's work is it really does a psychoanalysis of relationships and looks at love, not from a kind of hat who makes the tea in the morning or anything like that, but a real psychological level in what does it mean to be interdependent on someone And that really shapes my thinking in terms of how working couples kind of intertwine their lives. So the final thing is if anyone listening feels like they want to reach out to you, what would be the best way to do it? It's through my website, which I guess you'll put on the show notes. I yeah. will. Fantastic. Well, Jennifer, this has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're new to the show, I hope you will check out my previous interviews. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For the show notes, please head over to our website, womeninfinancepodcast.com. Thanks again and until next time, keep well. 
All opinions expressed by Andrea and her guests are solely personal opinions and do not reflect the opinion of any respective organization. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions.